Welcome to Always on Mission, evangelizing in challenging times. I'm Rosemary Maffey. And I'm Tom Lyman. We're coming to you from the Archdiocese of Boston. We want to welcome back our listeners. Hey, Tom, how's it going? Not bad, Rosemary. How are you? Good. Happy Feast of Saints Peter and Paul. And to you as well. Thank you so much. So, Tom, at the beginning of the Easter season, we set out to do this podcast really to bring some joy and encouragement to our listeners during this challenging time. And we know that even during a pandemic, it's so important to continue to evangelize. And we have been so blessed throughout this time to talk to people doing just that. Those who work on parish staff, engaged parishioners and parishes, innovative business leaders, young adults, youth ministers, campus ministers, Catholic school leaders, parish nurses, COVID ministry teams, teams at our archdiocese, and those leaders in evangelization throughout the country. How wonderful. What a great blessing this has been. It really is. And I think it's, I mean, it's a shot in the arm for me as well, just to hear about all the great things that are going on, not just in our diocese, but around around the country. Um, and, and give me real heart that the Lord is still acting. He never, he never rests, you know, and the, the Holy Spirit continues to inspire great work in the church that the Lord established, just like he has through all the different saints that we have talked about. I mean, think back and remember, we talked about St. Rosa Venerini and uh, Mother Teresa, St. John Paul II, uh, Blessed Pure Giorgio, uh, we even talked about Blessed Frederico Zanam and Venerable Father Augustus Tolton. To me, it really is uh, a, a wonderful thing to be able to see how God works uniquely in each different individual in each different time and place of the church. Yeah, what a gr- great example those saints have been for us all to live out our call to holiness, even in challenging times. Tom, we had set out to do this podcast during the Easter season, but as a bonus, we were able to bring this to our listeners during June as well. So this is actually our final episode. And what a great way to provide a great capstone for this wonderful time with the exciting news that we are going to be talking with our shepherd, the Archbishop of Boston, Cardinal Sean O'Malley. Who's our saint for today? Well, today, because it is Monday, June 29th, it is the Feast of St. Peter and Paul. And Tom, why do we celebrate them both on the same day? We celebrate them both on this day because they really are both founding pillars of the church uh, and that the Lord Jesus used each of them to both spread the church and give it a solid foundation from its beginnings. And so uh, it's actually uh, quite common in in our history to see the lives of Peter and Paul depicted together, especially in the most ancient churches. If you were to travel to Palermo, for example, and go to the Capella Palatina, which is part of the, the Norman palace built in the uh, around the the 11th century, 12th century, the the Palatine Chapel, as it would be known in English, shows incredible mosaics. And at the front, there is the Christ Pentocrator, the all-powerful. But then on either side of him are Peter and Paul. And then the walls on either side, matching where Peter and Paul are, have different scenes from the, the apostolic lives of Peter and Paul. And at one point, even showing 
the uh, the heartfelt meeting between the two of them when they met up again. And so we celebrate them together because the the, the church really cannot imagine itself without either one as a foundation. The other reason it's nice to do this today is that today our guest is going to be Cardinal Sean O'Malley himself. And so to highlight the apostolic connection that we have in our bishops, you know, in the Catholic Church, one of the great beauties of um, Catholic life is that everything in the church rests on apostolic succession. In other words, the ordination of our bishops and of our priests by those bishops goes right back to the selection of the 12 apostles that Jesus himself made. And so those 12 apostles Jesus selected, they went on to ordain priests, they went on to ordain other bishops, and those bishops ordained other bishops all the way down, connected all the way down to the present day. And so uh, it, it's essential to, to remember this, the apostolicity of our church, to understand um, the foundations of who we are. There's so much to be said about both Peter and Paul. You're just going to share some highlights, which is going to be so awesome. Let's start with Peter. What do we know about Peter after the Pentecost? Yes. So uh, after Pentecost, we see Peter in the Acts of the Apostles kind of quickly standing up and saying, you know, folks, uh, all these different languages you hear us speaking, we're not drunk. You know, this is uh, we have received the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to to produce an extraordinary uh, defense of the faith and, and really an incredible proclamation of the charisma, the simple saving message of Jesus, Jesus um, life, death and resurrection and what this meant for all those people. And that same day, 3,000 people responded to his invitation and were baptized and were added to the church. And so we see Peter throughout the Acts of the Apostles leading the other apostles, but also coming to understand at a much deeper level what Jesus intended, just what he intended by all the different things he said and did. And so it's beautiful in Acts to kind of see the unfolding of the church uh, and God's will for it uh, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in these men uh, and in Peter, no less. But at different points, in many different points, Peter uh, began to come into conflict with the Jewish authorities. And so on two different occasions, the high priest had him arrested. In one of those cases, he was miraculously freed from his prison chains and astonished the other apostles by just appearing back among them. You know, he he's awakened by an angel. The chains fall off his wrists. He walks by the sleeping prison guards. The angel opens the gate and he, he realizes, I'm walking down the street. This isn't a dream. I'm actually walking down the street. And he's released from prison and comes back to, to preach again the holy name of Jesus uh, in Jerusalem. But after this time, we know that uh, Peter from, from Acts preached in Joppa and Lydda on the coasts of Palestine and also in Caesarea. And in Caesarea, we hear of him converting a Gentile named Cornelius. And this is very important because Peter had just had this vision that you may know about. We all have heard this story from Acts where he has this vision of all kinds of unclean animals, according to Jewish law, and an angel saying to Peter to slaughter and eat. He says, no, how could I, how could I dare do such a thing? This, these are unclean animals. But then the angel says, what God has made clean, you are not to call unclean. And this becomes a great opening up of Peter to the mission to the Gentiles. And that indeed the Gentiles are going to be uh, a major object of, of, his, of his ministry. 
For a time, he was elected as Bishop of, of Antioch. You know that the many of um, the early Christians in Jerusalem fled Jerusalem at certain points in a, persecution, in a persecution that arose around the year 42, and a whole bunch of them left, and it was kind of a diaspora uh, to the city of Antioch to the north. Uh, we're not sure how long he remained there, but sometime after the year 50, we know that he ended up in Rome. Uh, and he spent his time there as the leader of the community. The, the fact that he, he, he lived and died there the same year as St. Paul is soundly based on the writings of three early church fathers, St. Irenaeus of Lyon, St. Clement of Alexandria, as well as Tertullian, who was a priest. Uh, and so it's interesting at this time to begin to kind of cross-reference what we hear in the letters of Paul, in the Acts of the Apostles, uh, and in the writings of the fathers that all confirm one another, but help us understand the timeline of what happened. Tom, so what writings do we have from St. Peter? The only writings by St. Peter which have come down to us are his New Testament epistles. Uh, this first is first led the first letter of Peter and the second letter of Peter. There are other apocryphal books which have not been included in the canon of sacred scripture um, from the time that those discussions were had back in the fourth century and before. Um, but those epistles are thought to have been written from Rome to the Christian converts of Asia Minor. And we, we know this. We believe that it was they were written from Rome because Peter sends greetings from the church was, which is at Babylon. And Babylon was a common way for Jews to speak about Rome, even, even though that Babylon was another place. The ancient Babylon we, we all know of was, was kind of long laid waste. It was not a real city anymore. So he, he, he meant that he was at Rome. And in that uh, first epistle, uh, there are lots of admonitions to mutual helpfulness, charity, humility, the life of Christian virtue, and just outlines the duties of Christians in all aspects of life. And then the second letter of Peter warns against false teachings and speaks of the second coming of the Lord and ends with a beautiful doxology, which says this, but grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and the day of eternity. And so you can see that that Peter is looking forward himself to the second coming of the Lord. So let's pivot to St. Paul now, Tom. We hear so much about St. Paul's conversion. Share with us a little bit about his former life and his conversion. Well, St. Paul was born in Tarsus, which uh, was in Asia Minor and, you know, what we now know as Turkey. Uh, and he would have been raised uh, as part of that Jewish diaspora that existed around the Mediterranean. You know, we hear uh, back in the gospel about Simon the Cyrenian, you know, who who assisted Jesus in carrying his cross, uh, you know, from Cyrene. Cyrene is what we would now call part of Libya today, the northern coastal part of Libya. So there were Jews from all around the eastern Mediterranean. And St. Paul's family was one of those. Uh, not only that, he was is he was a Roman citizen, a Roman citizen by birth. And this actually is, um, this shows how the Lord works and how sometimes these seemingly unimportant secular details can actually make a huge difference for evangelization. So because of his Roman citizenship, this opened all sorts of doors for him. It'd be kind of like having a, a you know, dual citizenship today or like having having a European passport, which is just, you know, as, as an American, which would enable you to go all around Europe or even work there, you know. So this opened doors for Paul. But 
He uh, was an extremely devout Jew, a fervent Jew, and a member of the sect of the Pharisees. And he was he would he excelled at his studies. He he himself talks about how he was a student of the great scholar Gamaliel. Was so uh, committed to his Pharisaic beliefs that he even went to the length of persecuting early Christians. Um, and we we see the evidence in the Acts of the Apostles uh, at the stoning of Saint Stephen, where Stephen, um, you know, proclaims uh, he he sees the heavens opened. And and Jesus sitting at the right hand of power, and you know at this this is blasphemy, and the the crowd takes up, um, they lay their cloaks at the foot of a young man named Saul. Now this is this is Saul who would become Paul, and so uh, lay down their cloaks at Saul's feet. In other words, he was giving full approval to this, and they picked up stones and stoned him to death. And he is the proto martyr of the church, who we celebrate on December 26th, the very day after Christmas. And so St. Paul, this was what he was doing. And we know he was on his way to Damascus, on the road to Damascus, on the way to arrest Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem in chains. And while he is on that road to Damascus, he has an incredible mystical encounter with the Lord who strikes him blind, uh, knocks him on the ground. Some of the paintings show him falling off his horse. We don't actually know that he was riding a horse or whatever it was. Knocks him on the ground, blinds him, and he has a vision of the Lord Jesus who says to them, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's very interesting to note that he said persecuting me because Saul actually thought he was persecuting the church or these Christians. But in fact, in doing so, Jesus sees it as Saul persecuting Jesus' very self. You know, so this is a fascinating ident identification of Jesus with the his own body, the church. It's a fascinating, um, you know, thing to unpack. And so his conversion, we know that he is led blinded to um onto Damascus, where uh, he, he meets Ananias. He's told to, to find this Ananias who lives in the street called Straight. And Ananias lays hands on him, opens his eyes, and Paul asks for baptism. Praise God for that conversion, Tom, and what great work and, and ministry we've seen through St. Paul ever since. Tell us a little bit about St. Paul and the Areopagus, and how is this something we can learn um, from today? I love this particular passage in the Acts of the Apostles. St. Paul is in Athens, and while he was waiting for others in Athens, he, I'm reading now from Acts 17, verses 16 and onward. While Paul was waiting for the Benask Athens, he grew exasperated at the sight of a city full of idols. So he debated in the synagogue with the Jews and with the worshipers, and daily in the public square with whoever happened to be there. This is quite a guy, you know, he's just taking it up with anybody here. Even some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers engaged him in discussion. Some asked, what is this scavenger trying to say? Others said, he sounds like a promoter of foreign deities because he was preaching about Jesus and resurrection. They took him and led him to the Areopagus and said, may we learn what this new teaching is that you speak of? For you bring some strange notions to our ears. We should like to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians, as well as the foreigners residing there, used their time for nothing else but telling or hearing something new. So this is an interesting insight into the Athenian culture of the day. They loved a good conversation. Then Paul stood up at the Areopagus and said, 
You Athenians, I see that in every respect you are very religious. For as I walked around looking carefully at your shrines, I even discovered an altar inscribed to an unknown god. What therefore you unknowingly worship, I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all that is in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in sanctuaries made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands because he needs anything. Rather, it is he who gives to everyone life and breath and everything. He made from one the whole human race to dwell on the entire surface of the earth. And he goes on and on saying, you know, quoting the, quoting the Old Testament, for in him we live and move and have our being. We too are his offspring. But then he talks about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And they begin to say this, when, he, when they heard about resurrection of the dead, some began to scoff, but others said, we should like to hear you on this some other time. And so Paul left them, but some did join him and became believers. Among them were Dionysius, a member of the court of the Areopagus, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So it's interesting. Uh, some people, they all listened. Some accepted it. Some rejected it. Some said, yeah, let's, let's talk about this again. I'm not, you know, okay. You know, they weren't, they weren't moved one way or another. What is the lesson for us today? Well, for those of us in the new evangelization, it's an important lesson to look for that which in our current culture is good and to be able to take from that good a way in which we can begin to speak about our faith and the way we, can, we in which we can identify the, the workings of God, even in ordinary things that people see and understand. And this is what Paul was doing when he looked around Athens and saw all these idols, all these different gods, including the God that was unknown. And, God pro, and then Paul proclaimed the God we know to the Athenians. Uh, so this is a message for us also that we will often sow, but not always be the ones to reap the big harvest. Maybe that will happen later on. We don't know if some of those folks that listened to Paul that day later on converted, uh, in addition to Dionysius and Damaris. But um, uh, for us in the new evangelization, we must proclaim uh, Jesus and his resurrection and not worry about whether or not people are ready to receive it right now. How did St. Paul's life end and where is he buried? So St. Paul, um, eventually uh, he was taken to Rome as, as a prisoner for you know, upsetting the order as we, as we all know. But because he was a Roman citizen, he was entitled to certain protections of the law. Uh, much like in the United States, an American is entitled to a, a speedy trial. You know, that, that's a, a, a common American uh, understanding. And, and St. Paul, likewise, as a Roman citizen, was entitled to a certain proper Roman treatment. Um, so he was in prison there. He wrote a number of his letters from prison in Rome, uh, or from house arrest, really. Um, but he was ultimately beheaded, uh, and he was taken outside the walls of Rome. And it was there that he was beheaded. And the legend says that his head, when it fell to the ground, hit the ground and kind of bounced three times. And from those three places, uh, a different, three different springs welled up. And so even today, there is a place called Tre Fontane, where there is a uh, Cistercian, uh, Cistercian Abbey. But St. Paul was then buried there outside the walls. And today you can visit um, the site of his burial in the magnificent papal basilica of 
St. Paul outside the wall, San Paolo fuori le mura. It's quite a ways outside the center from all of the other sites that you would see in, in tourist Rome, but it is absolutely worth a visit when you go there. So St. Paul, and that would have been the year uh, 64, part of the persecution of Nero. I want to close this conversation by hearing about your personal experience at the tomb of St. Peter. How cool. Yes. So um, some of you may have, some of our listeners may know about the Scavi tour, which you can take at St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. So we, we all know that, you know, St. Peter is, is buried there under the Basilica, that this is uh, close to where he was crucified. And again, as uh, multiple ancient reports corroborate that it is not just legend, but in fact that Peter was crucified upside down. He requested to be um, crucified that way because he did not deserve the honor to die in the exact same way that the Lord Jesus did. And so he was crucified there on the Vatican Hill across the Tiber from kind of the center of Rome and buried in a cemetery that would have been right next to a racetrack. There was actually a, a racetrack, uh, horse track, you know, right there in, in what we would now know as St. Peter's Square. Um, buried there and a small memorial was placed, like a little oratory kind of over his tomb by Pope Anacletus in probably in the 80s of the first century. Well, there was uh, at the time of Constantine, Constantine finally um, remove the requirement that Christians be forced to worship the Roman gods, which of course they wouldn't do and they were then martyred for that. Remove that requirement, basically legalize Christianity. And um, at this time, we begin seeing the construction of churches that could now operate out in the open, not just hidden in houses or hidden underground in catacombs and this sort of thing. So churches were now built and Constantine himself paid for the building of this um, basilica over the tomb of St. Peter. And this is in the 300s uh, AD. That basilica lasted um, until the 1400s when it began to crumble. It was it was going to it was going to collapse. And so they began a project to restore it. But by the early 1500s, the popes realized restoration was not going to be enough. An entire new building would have to be put up. And so this began the construction of the St. Peter's Basilica we know today with that one central piece that remained in place um, from the old basilica still there today. You may notice the papal altar. Um, it's kind of above a little set of stairs. If you go down those little stairs uh, where Pope Francis celebrates mass, down there, there is a, 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 a little wall that is close to the place where Peter is thought to be buried. Well, in the 1950s, Pope Pius XII was doing some excavation to expand the crypt of the Vatican to bury more popes in the lower church of the Vatican. But as they were doing this, you know, anytime you dig in Rome, you have to begin an archaeological um, excavation at the same time because it's almost impossible not to find something ancient anywhere you dig in Rome. And what do you know? They begin trying to expand the crypt, and what do they find? They find an entire ancient Roman cemetery. There's an entire street they, like a, that you would walk through in a cemetery down there with different Roman tombs. And as you walk through it, you see Roman tombs that are formed in, in, you know, for the religion of the ancient Romans. But then slowly you start to see signs on some graves of Christians. You see the fish and you know this is the burial of a Christian. And further on, they discovered something like the structure of a little oratory. 
And sure enough, this was the oratory built by Pope Anacletus. And as they opened it up, they found inside bones. Those bones now have been tested, and they are indeed the bones of a middle-aged to elderly Middle Eastern man who was a, probably a strong guy, like a, had a strong, solid figure, but was not too tall. And all of these things confirm kind of the basic story we know about St. Peter. And they happen to be directly located behind where that altar is and where that little uh, confession of St. Peter, they call it, that little staircase down below the altar. They located the bones of St. Peter. And so if you and I go on the Skyview tour today, we can go and look in a window and see the purple cloth within which those bones are wrapped. Um, and the purple cloth was there inside the tomb indicating royalty. This was the Prince of the Apostles. So just an extraordinary thing. I had the, the gift to be able to do that in 2010. And I encourage anyone to many months in advance, reserve your free tickets online um, and take a tour below St. Peter's to the Scavi tour. Thank you so much, Tom. Could you close us in a prayer? This is the prayer for the solemnity of Saints Peter and Paul. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. O God, who on the solemnity of the apostles Peter and Paul, give us the noble and holy joy of this day. Grant, we pray, that your church may in all things follow the teaching of those through whom she received the beginnings of right religion. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, today is not only the Feast of Saints Peter and Paul, but it's actually our next guest's birthday. Stay tuned for our conversation with His Eminence, Cardinal Sean O'Malley, Archbishop of Boston. Welcome back to Always On Mission, evangelizing in challenging times. Tom and I are overjoyed to be joined by our shepherd, His Eminence, Cardinal Sean O'Malley, Archbishop of Boston. Welcome, Cardinal Sean. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be with you. And of course, we're pre-recording this, but it's going to be released on June 29th. So let me be the very first to wish you a happy, happy birthday. Thank you. <laughs> it's in my family. A lot of us are born on Feasts of the Apostles. I'm not sure how they worked that out. <laughs> so tell us a little bit more about your background, your family, and your vocational discernment. Well, I uh, was blessed with a very faith-filled family. And the parish was the center of our uh, life in many ways. Uh, we lived very close to the church, uh, attended the Catholic school there, and uh, was very involved as an altar server. In those days, the priests weren't allowed to say Mass without a server. So when no service would arrive, the priest would come and knock on the back door and have my mom send the O'Malley boys over to serve. <laughs> so, and I had an uncle who was a, a diocesan priest, Father Terry Reedy, who baptized all of us. And uh, so all of these things, I'm sure, were a great influence on on me growing up, but uh, 
very early on, I felt a, a call to to religious life and to priesthood. Uh, I had hoped in joining the Capuchins that I would go to the foreign missions, and I was supposed to prepare myself to go to Easter Island, actually, in, in the Pacific. Then at the last minute, uh, because so many uh, refugees and immigrants were coming to Washington, Archbishop Cardinal Boyle asked my provincial to leave me in Washington. He said, I only have one priest that speaks Spanish and that brother speaks Spanish, leave him here. So I ended up being 20 years in Washington, uh, working with immigrants. It was a great joy, a great privilege, many, many blessings for me personally. Yeah, well, we're blessed to have you here. So today's not only your birthday, Cardinal Sean, but it's also the great feast of Saints Peter and Paul. Talk to us about how the saints really encourage us in our own path to holiness. And who are some of your favorites? Who have really inspired you in your own discipleship? Well, I think that, uh, you know, I grew up in a generation where the lives of the saints were front and center in our formation and our education. And uh, I would like to see some of that restored, as it were. Uh, you know, I often reflect on the fact that uh, in the United States for decades, uh, the cowboy movies were the norm. Almost, almost half of the movies made in the United States were cowboy movies, the same with television uh, series. And it presented a very individualistic hero. And I think that has been, uh, in some ways, detrimental to formation. But that has evolved now into the anti-heroes and the celebrities and whose lives uh, don't always inspire people to a life of service and sacrifice and virtue. Uh, on the other hand, that's precisely what the saints do for us. They they inspire us to lead a faithful life of discipleship, to make a gift of ourselves to God and to others. And Pope John Paul II, Saint Pope John Paul II, uh, canonized and beatified more saints than any other pope in history, precisely because he wanted to underscore the fact that we have all these wonderful examples of holiness around us to inspire us and show us with the witness of their lives how to lead lives of faithful and joyful discipleship. And, and Pope Francis, in his uh, uh, letter on sanctity and, and holiness, uh, he talks about the saints next door, <laughs> which I think is a great concept because all of us have met a few of those saints next door who uh, lead outwardly very ordinary lives, but are faith-filled people whose generosity and joy and whose love for the Lord and their spirit of sacrifice and the way that they serve others, their sense of vocation, sense of mission, have been so transformative uh, in their personal lives and in the lives of the people that they touch with their witness. Your Eminence, a few months ago, due to the outbreak of the COVID pandemic, public masses had to be temporarily suspended to protect the health and safety of all people. Could you share with us your experience of not being able to celebrate public mass with the people of the Archdiocese, and more recently, the good news that we are able to begin gathering as a community for mass again? Well, it was a very hard blow for us. We were just getting ready 
to launch the Eucharistic year when suddenly, uh, right before Holy Week, when we would have been receiving uh, new Catholics into the church and with all of the beautiful celebrations of, of Holy Week, all of these things were, were put on hold, as it were. I, I tried to reassure our people that the priests and the bishops would continue to celebrate Mass privately uh, for them every day. I know that whenever Mass is celebrated, the whole church is present at that Mass. But it was a difficult time, and yet I, I wonder if God in His providence wasn't uh, preparing us for uh, our Eucharistic year by calling us to a deeper appreciation uh, of the Eucharist. Uh, when, when I was a child, we had very strict uh, Eucharistic fasts. You had to fast uh, from midnight, uh, the night before you would receive communion. You could not even drink water. In the Catholic schools, they would have these leather things draped over the water fountains to remind you not to, to drink any water. Later on, it was changed to a three-hour fast. That allowed us to have masses in the afternoon, because before that, uh, it would have been difficult for people to fast all day to, to celebrate Mass or to receive communion. And more recently, the fast has been reduced to one hour before communion. I, I suspect a lot of Catholics don't even realize that, that there is a communion fast at all. And yet, part of the function of that fast, it goes back to the early church. Uh, St. Augustine writes about it, and Thomas Aquinas and others, was to reflect our hunger for God. My hope is that this strange communion fast that we've had, which wasn't just fasting from water, food, and preparation, but fasting from Eucharist itself, I hope has increased our hunger to receive the body and blood of Christ in the Eucharist and to appreciate all the more the great gift of the Eucharist, which is the center of our lives as believers. The Church always springs up around the Mass, where the Eucharist is celebrated. So this long period of not being able to celebrate Mass in our parishes has been distressing for all of us, and we're so overjoyed that at least now we're able to begin the process of bringing people back to Mass. We're grateful for all of the hard work of our priests and parishioners who have prepared our churches to be able to do this in a way that makes sense in a way that is safe for people. We're very aware of the fact that our elderly, our seniors, and our immigrants are two of the most affected demographics uh, by the pandemic, and we want to be very, very careful uh, to make sure that everyone is, is safe in our churches. Cardinal Sean, during this pandemic, we've been so encouraged by the efforts of pastors, parish staff, parishioners, Catholic school leaders, campus ministry chaplains, parish nurses, COVID ministry teams, and many others in bringing Christ to others through great innovation, technology, and the emphasis on evangelization. Could you share with us your thoughts on using these new methods that were anticipated by St. John Paul II in his call to the new evangelization. And what's been your impression of the Archdiocese's efforts in these challenging times? Well, I, once again, we believe in a loving God who brings good out of evil. And I think one of the good things that has come out of this is uh, a greater use 
of all of these technologies that uh, we now have at our disposal. We've been talking about this for a long time, but suddenly we've been forced to uh, to do it. And I remember they had a, a conference several years ago that Archbishop Chaput organized in Denver on the internet. And uh, one of the speakers said, uh, the impact of the internet on civilization will be greater than the impact on, of the invention of the printing press. And I thought to myself, well, that's a hyperbole. You know, that's an exaggeration. But it really isn't. Uh, the, the internet r really has revolutionized uh, a culture of communications in our world. And uh, the pandemic has forced us to become more involved in this means of communication, and particularly as a way of making the church's message present to the young who are so conversant with all of its wonderful technologies, uh, has been a blessing for us. And I'm sure it's going to be enhance uh, our ability to evangelize and to witness to the good news of the gospel. As a last question, Your Eminence, can you share your thoughts about what it means to be always on mission, the name of our podcast, and how all of us can respond to this call to discipleship and evangelization, even in these challenging times? Well, I think, you know, uh, we live in a culture that is very, very individualistic. And uh, sometimes that individualism kind of creeps into uh, people's religious thought, you know, I think the this new age type of spirituality, a little poetry, a little sentiment, a little it's all very individualistic. And actually, a discipleship is never a solo flight. It always means being part of Jesus's mission. The church exists to evangelize, to announce the good news, and as part of the church, we are part of that mission. When you think 2,000 years ago about that group of people that gathered uh, when Jesus gave us the great commissioning before his ascension to the right hand of the Father. He gives us our marching orders. He says, go make disciples of all nations. And that group of very simple people, fishermen and farmers, and perhaps illiterate people, uh, they took that command very seriously, and they went out to the ends of the earth. Uh, most of them died as martyrs because they had that deep sense of mission, that we are here, we have a, a message of salvation and of God's love, and we have to share that message. And that's, uh, that's a 24-hour-a-day, uh, seven-day-a-week uh, mission that we all have. I think what's happening to us now has is, is made us more aware of that. Your Eminence, what a joy and treat this has been for us. Could you close us with a short prayer and blessing? Why, of course. Uh, let us pray. Father of goodness, we bless and praise your holy name. You are the source of every good gift, the source of life, the source of newness in life in our faith. Today, as we venerate the memory of our great apostles and martyrs, Peter and Paul, we ask you to fill our hearts with their sense of zeal and desire to make your kingdom more visible in our world. Help us to be faithful, joy-filled, enthusiastic, 
and generous servants of your word. Help our local church here, inspire us to be missionary disciples, and to do so with joy and enthusiasm so that we will be able to help others discover that Jesus is alive and he is in our midst. In all of this, we ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. May the blessing of Almighty God through the intercession of Our Lady and all the saints descend upon you and your loved ones in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, thank you so much, Cardinal Sean. Tom and I want to thank you so much for accompanying us on this journey as we shared this podcast, Always on Mission, Evangelizing in Challenging Times. Feel free to tune in to an episode if you missed one. And we really want to encourage you to respond to your own call to holiness, your own call to always be on mission. God bless.